My sisters and brothers, hear the good news from 1 Corinthians. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Ten shards of broken glass. These shards were collected by a woman named jo Joan Trumpauer Mulholland outside of 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. On September 15, 1963, the Ku Klux Klan detonated a bomb in that church and killed four little girls. The bombing came just days after that famous march on Washington, where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And Joan, the woman who picked up these shards of glass, she recalls how shattering it was to go from the euphoria of having this huge, huge march in Washington to having those kids be murdered. She said, in Washington, we'd felt that the nation had reached a new plateau a new high of civility, and that we were brought down so hard. No matter how good it felt in Washington, no, how, no matter how, how powerful it felt in the seat of power, the reality of the South was still there. 
the ugliness and the violence hadn't gone anywhere. It seems to be the way things go, right? Just as we think we've reached a new plateau, just as we think we've made some progress, we find that ugliness and violence are still there and all of our striving, all of our work, all of our wisdom and strength just seem like a patch on the problem. I thought about these shards this week as I read Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Paul's not smashing windows this morning with these words, but I think he is throwing open the blinds or maybe wiping off the condensation. He's telling these Corinthian Christians, you think you see how the world works. You think you have this window on things that is accurate, is reality. But what you're looking at is a false picture. And I'm going to show you how things really are. Paul says to the Corinthians, you think this is a world where the intelligent run the show. But I tell you that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He says to these Corinthians, you think this is a world where might makes right. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He tells these Corinthians, you think this is a world of hierarchy and status, but God chose the low and the despised, things that are nothing, to reduce to nothing the things that are. And he says, I know this looks like sheer folly to you, like, like absurd silliness. But when you see the world as it truly is, when you have the right window on things, then you can see the point of it all. And the point is this. We proclaim to you Christ crucified. Nothing else. That is the crux of the matter. That is the main thing. That's the beginning and the end of every story that I will tell you. I think that was a challenging word for this church that was going through a lot of strife, through a lot of division. This church was being torn apart by factions. If you read through the rest of the letter, you'll see this. People, people jockeying for status. The strong were causing the weak to stumble, and brothers and sisters were filing lawsuits against each other. And Some people were drinking their fill at the holy table before others even had a chance to eat. And for Paul, these are not just kind of cracks that you can paper over. Not the sort of thing you say, well, that's just sort of how things go when you live in community with each other. This false picture of reality in Corinth had its consequences. This is a shattered church that Paul is writing to, and the pieces are lying in the street. In chapter 8, he says, you are destroying each other. By living according to this false picture of the world, the Corinthian Christians were denying the gospel itself. I think we're still wrestling with these two pictures of the world. The picture of the world that exalts status and, and intelligence and, and power. And then the one that Paul gives us, where everything is flipped over and turned upside down. And I think we're wrestling with the consequences, too. 
I see it in my own parish, my own prestigious, technocratic, competitive, high-stakes, workaholic parish. It's the University of Waterloo. Some of you know it well. Some of you know those characteristics well. Last June, I gathered with about 400 members of the University of Waterloo community for a wellness collaborative launch on campus. It was in Federation Hall, and there were 400 of us gathered there. Everyone in that room said, we want to make this a better place to be. We want to make this a, a healthier community. They were concerned about the state of mental health on campus because, like most universities, the University of Waterloo has been going through a, a mental health crisis. Counseling services on campus are overwhelmed. The UW Reddit page is full of stories of loneliness and isolation. Suicides, self-harm, the shards are everywhere. But the university wants to pick up the pieces and, and earnestly wants to pick up the pieces. So at this wellness collaborative launch, I sat with a table of people I didn't know and I told them that my little denomination, which they may have never heard of, had been in the, well, the business of wellness at the University of Waterloo for 45 years. They seemed impressed. And we listened together as the presenters came up one after another and walked us through the new wellness charter that the university had adopted. I was really encouraged by it all. And I was especially encouraged because they showed this pie chart of all the different components of wellness, and one of the pieces of the pie was spirituality. And I thought, what a breath of fresh air on a campus that can feel so unremittingly secular to see that spirituality is acknowledged as a critical component of well-being. After the event, I hopped on my bike and I, ran, and I rode back to my office. And as I was sitting there alone, away from the audience, away from the crowd, it hit me. I don't know what we're talking about when we talk about spirituality. When spirituality came up in the, in the, in the presentation, it, it came up alongside words like mindfulness and, and meditation. We actually did a mindfulness exercise to kick the whole thing off, led by someone clad in the priestly vestments of Lululemon. <laughs> and it was nice. I don't have a beef with mindfulness and meditation. Those things sound lovely. If you're going to be more reflective and thoughtful and, and find quiet space, sounds like a healthy thing to do. But as a kind of spirituality, to address the deep, deep wound on campus. It seemed like such a slight thing. How could taking a moment of silence bandage over the hurt, the despair, the loneliness and the isolation? It just felt like a patch job. How could that possibly pick up all the pieces? And then I thought, it's a long way. Mindfulness is a long, long way from Christ crucified for the life of the world. 
I should be clear, I love this institution. I love the life of the mind that happens there. Discovery and, and research and, and exploration and being a student are such marvelous things. And being a scholar and being a student are such worthy vocations to have. But there's a vision of reality that goes along with that. One that praises cleverness. One that praises having a big brain. One that obsesses over rankings and status and accomplishments. One that chases after power. And maybe not miraculous power like the Jews in Paul's day wanted, but technological power. I overhear it all the time. In the conversations outside my office in the Student Life Center, the engineers sitting out there jockeying for status, talking about co-op terms and bragging about the schools they got into and didn't get into for graduate school. But it's not always boasting either. Sometimes it's weeping. And I hear it from the people who cast the vision for the place too. At the Wellness Collaborative, the president got up and said, I know that we have a mental health crisis on campus, but we will not sacrifice our standards. What are our standards? What are our benchmarks for how the world works? What do they say about our assumptions for how thing, about how things are? The danger here is that this view of things, this understanding that this is the way things are, becomes something more than just the wrong impression, the wrong window on reality. It becomes the very thing by which we measure our lives. And no wonder the mental health toll is so great. No wonder the wound runs so deep. Who could stand up to all that? A few of you might know that this table, Jesus' table, is not located just here, not located just in churches around town, but also extends onto campus. There's a small group of us that gather every Monday morning at 8 a.m. on campus for a small little litany, a smaller version of this feast. We read scripture together, we sing a cappella, sometimes in several keys at once. <laughs> and then we pass the bread and the cup to each other. It's a short service, 20 minutes, first thing in the work week. People don't have to run off to class at 8.30. They stick around for a while and talk. And one morning last fall, probably around midterm season, which seems to be about an eight-week chunk of the term, the conversation turned to the high-stakes situation that was the week ahead. And I asked the room, are you valued here for who you are? Or are you valued for what you can accomplish? Are you valued for who you are? Or are you valued for what you do? What we do was the unanimous answer. And you could feel the pressure to perform in the, in the air. And you know, good grades are great. And, and work done well is even better than good grades. But when our accomplishments, 
When our goals and our intellectual capacities and our capabilities become definitive of who we are, then we're just relying on our wisdom and our power and our strength to engineer our self-worth. And we're buying into that false picture of the world that Paul calls to our attention. And then I'd say that we're also waiting for the break, for the collapse, for the broken glass. I can tell you this story because this is a parish that I am familiar with, but I don't think it is a, an issue that is limited to that particular parish of mine in Waterloo. I think this is true of every corporate boardroom. I think it's true of every office block. I think it's true of every job site. I think it's true of every internship. And what do you think? True of every congregation of upwardly mobile, middle-class strivers? Think of the power plays. Think of the reliance on our own wisdom. Think of the factions and the division and all the things that flow from the way we see the world. But that conversation we had in the chaplain's office at the University of Waterloo, it happened right after we shared the body and the blood of Jesus with each other, right after we met Christ crucified, right in the heart of an institution that values power and strength and wisdom. And that juxtaposition just sticks out in my mind. And I think that juxtaposition is the gospel. In that room, eight or nine of us around a table, in this room, several hundred of us around a table, the crucified one says to us, you think your wisdom and your cleverness and your intelligence is going to make me love you more? No way. I will return all of that. I will show you a wisdom that the biggest brain could never have dreamt up. The crucified one says to us, you think only the strong survive at this table? No way. My bread is for the famished and the frail. The crucified one says to us, do you think your accomplishments and your achievements and your glittering accolades are going to get you a better seat at the table? No way. This table is general admission. There is no VIP lounge. There are no box seats. He says, you've got your picture of the world, but come and see it my way. I will show you mercy and grace and redemption. Jesus invites us to this table because he loves us. Before the foundations of the earth, he has loved us. All the way to death, he has loved us. And that's what makes us worthy. Nothing else matters. I want to get back to Birmingham. We started with broken glass. Those shards were swept up, picked up and swept away, and a new window was put in its place. 
This was a window that was designed by an artist in Wales who heard about the bombing and thought that he could put his craft to use in some way to help, help make things better. And he sought donations from Welsh people to, to, to create this window, and he limited the donations to like 15 pence per person or something, so, so it could be a contribution from everybody that this, this is a gift from, from, from the people of Wales to 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. I think it's stunning. Christ crucified, his right hand pushing back on all the vain things that charm us most, pushing back on the powers and the principalities and all the things that divide us, and his left hand calling his people closer. And sure, there's a point that we could make here about resurrection, I think. How we've moved from, from broken glass and, and brokenness to, to a restored image. And I think that would be true. But we are happy ending people, and we like to move on to the resurrection so quickly, I think. We should long for it, right? But there's a sense in which Christians never get past the cross. The cross is not some preliminary thing. The cross is not some elementary thing that we move past along the way. The cross is the grammar of the life that we are called to. The very thing by which all wisdom and all power and all strength are judged. Paul preaches Christ crucified. So does this window on 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. That is how the light gets into that church. That's how the people in that church see the world. And maybe that's how the world can see Jesus' church, too. That image hits me like a sacrament. And it captures something of the paradoxical nature of Christ crucified that Paul tells us about today. Jesus' arms out as one crucified but raised as one victorious. This is the power of God, contrary to all the power plays of the world. Christ crucified, we proclaim to you, we proclaim to the world, Christ crucified. At the center of all things, That's a graceful vision for anyone who is fed up with the way the world works. It's a graceful vision for anyone who knows that our attempts to fix the problems are just a patch job at best. It's a graceful vision for the last, the least, the lost, the lonely, the weeping, and the meek. That's where we find him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our merciful God, we confess to you that we are a people who are charmed by glittering accolades, by status, by earthly power. 
But we hear from your word this morning and we see in the life of your beloved one the true nature of reality. Christ crucified at the center of all things. May that be our vision for how the world works. May that shape our response to our neighbors and our brothers and sisters. May we know that our own sense of self-worth doesn't depend on things that we do, but depends on the one who loved us all the way to death. In his name we pray. Amen.